0: Well, we do thank the Lord for this wonderful new addition to the church family, um, Bo Christopher Bennett, and we just delight in God's goodness that mama and baby are doing so well. I think they're home, and I think last night that Chris was bonding with Bo, watching the Rangers. It may not have been the best experience, um, but he sent me a picture of that, and in this world, that's... About as good as it gets, a father with his newborn son. Well, there was a little mystery surrounding the name of this precious Bennett boy. Like, um, I think it was just like either a couple weeks ago, maybe, that they determined the name. They're probably watching right now online, and so I'm really free to say a lot of things that maybe I wouldn't otherwise say, but it was just announced that, that the name would be Beau Christopher Bennett. And we are so thankful for him. It reminds me of a story I read a few weeks ago about a man, a New York City businessman named Michael Ayer. And he didn't want to just go with the flow in terms of naming his new baby boy. He wanted something interesting, something maybe even um, a little uh, non-normative, if you will. And so among the names he was considering, he landed on Billion. His last name is Air, Billion Air, okay? And he would go by the name of Bill, okay? So I guess that's, I, there, well, I don't want to say any more about that. Okay, so um, interesting choice of names. A um, little closer to home. Let's see, I think I saw the Williamson's here. Okay, there we are. Yes, and so the Williamson family, their first son, biblical name, Precious Moses, and she's carrying three precious precious boys right now. We have Obadiah, we have Elijah, and we have Gideon, and we are anticipating their arrival. You can't really get stronger biblical names than that. But just choosing a biblical name is not always a guarantee that it's the best choice. (laughs) Read about a couple a few years ago in the UK. They're not Christian. This will become evident soon enough. They wanted a unique and strong name. I debated whether or not to share this, but... um, they chose the name for their newborn son to be Lucifer, believe it or not. That name actually means like uh, shining one or morning star. Um, It's been associated, you know, over the years with um, Satan and the devil. And the UK initially would not allow them to use that name because they said this could be very damaging for the child. They took it to court, and so there is now a young man in the UK named Lucifer running around. Um, Had Hosea been, um, had he been a contemporary today, maybe the UK registry would not have allowed him to use and choose the names that he chose. For his daughter and his son were in the book of Hosea this morning, and the Lord told Hosea to name his children respectively Lo Ruhama, which means um, not loved, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. Why in the world would the Lord command his prophet Hosea to name his children not my people, okay, and not loved? That's because it was symbolic of God's strained relationship with his people. The names that Hosea was to give his children were to symbolically represent the difficulty and the strain of relationship with the Lord and his people, the children of Israel. Okay, so putting in context what we're doing now, all right? So over the summer, can you even remember what sermon series we covered this summer Gold star if you can. I'm tempted to call on someone, but I won't because I have a hard time remembering what happened a couple weeks ago. Some of you look confused and nervous, okay? We studied the book of Revelation, okay, over the summer. And then, you know, a few weeks ago in the fall, we chose, very good, Sally, we chose... I could see you mouth it. I don't know if you were confident enough to say it, but we studied the book of Judges. This was all leading up. This is all to lead up, at least starting with Judges, to what? The incarnation of Jesus. Christmas, okay? So we chose the book of Judges in the context of the Old Testament to show and to demonstrate just how much we needed a Savior. So You remember the book of Judges, okay? There were these cycles that repeated that people would be faithful, then they would sin, they would fall away, and what would God raise up? You could be able to teach this now, right? Dave did a fantastic job last week. Dave, please smile when I say that. A fantastic job. Remember we called Dave the general, you know? And when Dave has a serious look, you're like, am I in trouble with the general? Um, Dave preached a fantastic sermon last week on Samson and Delilah. And remember, Dave's point, as powerful as Samson was, ultimately, we need a better judge. So what we're doing now is we're fast-forwarding in redemptive history. So if the book of Judges, it's written around, let's say, 1350 B.C., Um, I will, um, this may sound a little braggadocious, I don't mean it to, Uh, Elaine Rumalek came up to me last week before Sunday school, and she said, her husband Randy, he was watching the news, he was looking all, he he was, um, he's very familiar with what's going on in Israel and Palestine, I think he was special forces at one time, and Elaine came up to me and said, because of the degree to which we repeat these dates. Remember repetition is the key to learning. The degree to which we repeat these dates and what nation did what to Old Testament Israel that he could follow along. And he could see like how the Old Testament even relates to today. So this is kind of like I guess a justification for why we're going over these dates. Okay 1350 time of the judges thousand BC approximately what happens? David is crowned king, right? Because the people asked for a king. They were rejecting God as their king. So after the judges, the people asked for a king. That didn't go very well over time. What happened in 931 B.C.? Just raise your hand if you know. I'll give you a gold star. Yes. (laughs) Got to keep it interactive, all right? Keep us awake. Drink your coffee. 931 B.C., is when the kingdom split in half. Catastrophic, completely catastrophic. Okay, and you have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel or Ephraim. They start to do their own thing. And the kings of the north won't let worshipers in the north go down to the south and worship in Jerusalem. Apostasy happens relatively quickly in the Northern Kingdom. So here's your assignment at lunch. I'm serious about this. So that you can remember this, I want you to repeat and try to explain what happened in 931 B.C. when David's grandson basically made an unwise choice and the Northern Kingdom seceded from the Union. So in 931 B.C. you have the Northern Kingdom And then you have the southern kingdom. Things do not go well for the northern kingdom. They plunge into darkness and disobedience. And when the people did that, who did God raise up? You know this from your biblical history. He raised up the prophets. The prophets were covenant prosecutors. The prophets were called by God to come in and call the people to repentance. I would argue that the book we're going to study this morning to prepare our hearts for the incarnation may be the most unique prophet of them all. He was asked to do something that is staggering to believe. And we're going to look at what the Lord asked, commanded Hosea to do, and how that relates to us and prepares our hearts for Christmas. So we're about 750 B.C.? 730 B.C., that's when Hosea was fulfilling his ministry largely to the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom was to learn from this, like, don't let this happen to you. Okay, with that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning, we're primarily going to be in Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then at the end, we'll briefly look at at Hosea chapter 11. Remember, beloved, and Dr. Kara would always tell us this in summoning. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, Hosea is speaking here. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though, this sounds a little strange, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Hmm, that's interesting. Verse 2. So I bought her. Now that's interesting too. I'm going to buy her? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall, now this is is a pretty direct word, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay. The book of Hosea can be a little controversial, and I can remember studying this back in my seminary days as the professors acquainted us with the fact that there are, you know, a couple different views on this marriage. So a little context. In chapter 1, God calls Hosea to marry a woman of the night if you will. He commands one of his holy prophets, set aside for his purposes, to marry an adulteress, to marry a prostitute, which on the surface seems like what? It almost seems and feels scandalous. It almost seems and feels like it's, it's not right, like for God to do that to one of his faithful prophets to ask him to do something that that difficult perhaps even unclean and so some scholars conclude what even some conservative evangelical scholars conclude what about this marriage do you think they conclude that this marriage is purely what it's a symbol it's an allegory of course the Lord wouldn't actually ask his prophet to marry a woman of harlotry, you know that this would be allegorical, but that's not the case. The thing we have to grapple with this morning, the thing that we have to emotionally connect with, that's what's so great about this book, is this book packs an emotional punch almost like no other. As we've said over and over and over and over again, unless your sin and mine connects with us on a personal level, on a visceral level, then it won't move us. And that's what we try to do every week in our confession of sin is we're trying to choose something to connect with you so it's not rote, so we're not going through the motions. So in order to put idolatry in context as to what's really going on, he calls his prophet to marry a prostitute. And what is that to illustrate, my friends? That's to illustrate what the Lord has done with us. He is our husband. We are his bride. We have been unfaithful. Okay, so he commands Hosea to do what he, in fact, is doing. God is loving an unfaithful woman. And even in the context of Hosea, he's sending a prophet to his people to say, repent, I love you, come back to me, I want to redeem you, I'm not giving up on you. That's the message of the book of Hosea. I will say as I'm doing this, I know it's freezing in here. I just want to acknowledge, I see a number of you putting on your jackets. This happens this time of year, every year. Our AC system doesn't know what to do. It also will keep you awake, so that's good. That's a positive. Now this chapter in this chapter the lord doubles down on the difficulty this chapter is even more difficult than chapter one look with me at the text and the lord said to me hosea 3 verse 1 yahweh said to me go again love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So if it wasn't bad and hard enough in chapter 1 that Hosea is called to marry Gomer and to love her, a woman who's a prostitute by trade, implied here is that since that marriage, she has been like true to form and she has left Hosea. And she's now living with someone else so if it wasn't bad enough that he married her to begin with now he has to go get her back and bring her home can you imagine what Hosea would have felt like even initially that Gomer was unfaithful like this was a real marriage these were real people Hosea, as a faithful prophet, would have loved his wife and cared for her and would have felt the deepest sense of personal betrayal when she left. He would have had every right to do what? Like to offer her, write up a certificate of divorce and move on. But God calls him, go again, go again again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And then he shows you the comparison. You know, that's illustrating how the Lord loves the children of Israel. That's what he's doing. You will not find, I will argue, you will not find a more beautiful, vivid picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the depth and the significance and the weightiness of redemption anywhere even in the New Testament, then you get here in this amazing book written 27, 2800 years ago. It is just amazing how the Bible in the Old Testament, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, anticipates in such visceral ways what the gospel would be. Is that not incredible? I mean, just from a human standpoint, how in the world did the Bible anticipate that there would be a bridegroom who would redeem his people. It's still amazing to me. Look at the text here. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And now the text illustrates how they were engaging in idolatry. The children of Israel, though they turned to other gods, okay, that seems pretty clear, and love cakes of raisins. Now that's not clear. I love a good raisin cake. I am a raisin cake man. Um, Appreciate a good raisin cake. Um, My mother-in-law makes a very good carrot cake, kind of a cousin of the raisin cake. Um, Was not in the notes, sorry. Um, So within this Canaanite worldview, like what is their problem? over and over and over and over again the Israelites they would adopt the practices of the nations around them just like we do and they adopted the practices of the Canaanites who had all of these fertility rights so Chris and Amy Bennett you know and we're trusting in the Lord to provide them children Either either biologically or through adoption or just whatever. We trust the Lord to provide. Well, in the context of Hosea, the people of Israel were trusting in these Canaanite fertility rites. So um, they would eat these cakes of raisins and these cakes of raisins were said to provide fertility for those who ate them. And so it would be just the embodiment of idol worship. Trusting in... This system of idolatrous worship of the Canaanites to provide for their needs. I mean, that is the heart of idolatry. So, um, when we sin, it's not like we've said, like violating a set of school rules. Okay, I can remember back in the day, junior, senior year in high school, this particular teacher, Mr. Kelly, was notorious for going around and checking if our shirts were tucked in, which we thought was ridiculous, okay? And so we really didn't conform to it, and if you saw Mr. Kelly coming around, you would kind of like tuck your shirt in, and then we would leave. You thought it was a ridiculous rule. You would untuck your shirt, because it just seemed to be arbitrary, and that's what teenage boys did, and things like that. Um, I'm not sure if Covenant has a similar rule. I bet they do, actually. covenant's a great school um, at any rate like you just blow those I mean we shouldn't because we're honoring God honoring our authorities but you just kind of blow those things off that sometimes we associate that with the commands that the Lord has given us when we sin against the Lord when we trust in other things that equates to adultery and we're not going to be motivated to repent of our sins until we understand it in that context. This is inconceivable. Look at verse 2. So Hosea goes, it says, I bought her. So what had to have happened? Okay, Bible scholars, what had to have happened between when he married her and right now in our text? What did she do? So basically, she leaves Hosea and kind of engages in a prodigal son kind of lifestyle. She lives this this debaucherous lifestyle. She spends all of his money, probably, and then she goes and moves in with someone else. And in order to survive, what has she become? Like an indentured servant. And so in order to bring her home... Hosea has to buy her back. What's the biblical word when you buy someone back? Buy someone out of bondage. What's the the word? Redeem. Redeem. How many years was this before Jesus? Over 700 years. You have the idea of a husband redeeming his wife. Don't even have categories. Look at this. So when we think about, um, you know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Um, like you know, I used to think you know it was maybe because we were so so valuable, you know, that he gave himself for us like that. He redeemed us because we were we had such significant value. I guess in some senses that's true. But verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Do you know how much that equated to in the ancient Near East at that time? Half the price of a common slave. So Gomer was essentially worthless when Hosea buys her back. What does Peter tell us was the price or what Jesus paid, you know, when he saved us. You know, we weren't, it wasn't with silver or gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Though we didn't have worth or value per se, Christ paid everything for us. He gave it all, that's just mind blowing. Look at verse 3. Okay, I got to start my descent, here we go. Um, He says, and I said to her, and again for your, in our Sunday school class we talked about why you can have confidence in the Bible that you read. This text does that. This text alludes to what's going to happen in Israel in just a few years and how the Lord is going to bring back and restore his people. Verse 3, and I said to her, this is Hosea talking to Gomer, after he's redeemed her, you must dwell as mine for many days, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Now this may sound confining, but what he's saying to Gomer is, I'm going to ensure that you are faithful to me. I'm going to ensure that you stay here with me in the home. This is a loving form of discipline and restoration for Goma. And there's a day in the new heavens and the new earth when our redemption will be full and total and we will never stray again. And this is anticipating what's going to happen in Israel. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. This is an illustration of the fact. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. This is an allusion to basically the Assyrians coming in and conquering Israel and the Babylonians coming in and conquering the people and taking them into captivity and 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 disabusing them of their idolatry, okay? So that he could ultimately bring them home. Look at verse 5. Afterward, you know, after this exile, we call verse 4, like Israelites, the children of Israel have been taken into exile in Assyria and then later in Babylon, and then in around 536 BC, God brings them back. Verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. Now, isn't that interesting? How can they seek David their king, you know, five, six hundred years after David has died? What does it mean they're going to come back to the land in 536 B.C. and following, and they're going to seek David their king? What sense does that make? Who is the true David? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's an illusion that the Messiah with a capital M is coming, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Amazing. Amazing. Now, this text, we're going to go to panel five, and we're going to land the plane, and we'll be done, and you'll see explicitly how this is setting up, anticipating Advent. Almost finished here. Uh, the more you think about this, the more staggering it is. So fast-forwarding in the book of Hosea, all right? Look what it says here in Hosea 11, 1 and 2. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, how? so God redeemed... His son, Israel, from whom? From Pharaoh's oppressive hand. He called his son, Israel, out of Egypt and into the land via redemption. Okay? Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away, and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. We've talked about that. Um, You don't have to do this. But if you turned to Matthew chapter 2 in the New Testament, if you turn there to Matthew 2.15, remember the story of Jesus, you know, as a little one. And remember the Magi? The Magi come in to pay homage to the king. They tip off Herod. Does Herod like the fact that a Jewish Messiah has been born? No. Okay, that tips off Herod. Joseph and Mary get wind that Herod wants to kill the child, where do they go? You know this. We're almost done. Where do they go? To flee Herod. They go to Egypt. And then after that, when Herod dies, what does God do to the true Israel, to the true David? He calls Jesus out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we, we, we trust in all the wrong things. Honestly, we, we place our trust in raisin cakes, in horoscopes, in fortune cookies. We trust, you know, oftentimes functionally, we go on the internet, you know, if we have a difficult diagnosis or something like that, if we're honest, what are we trusting in? what are we taking comfort in that there's a cure that there's a medication for this that's what brings us comfort and that's fine in one sense but our ultimate trust is in our husband the Lord Jesus Christ the true David I want to read this text how much does he love you Peter tells us we love Peter Peter tells us for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold or a homer or a lethic of barley. No, 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 no. That you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. No, you were redeemed, you were purchased, you were set free with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That is what Hosea is about in the grand scheme of things. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we just don't have time to really um, appreciate um, these, these gospel truths that are so vividly embodied and articulated in the Old Testament. Father, we just are amazed at how all of the parts relate back to the whole, Father, we come to you as a humble, repentant people, acknowledging that we, just like Gomer, just like Gomer, we we have we have engaged in relationships and have sought meaning and value in so many other things, and we are guilty. And we thank you, though, that we had no worth or value on one level. Even though we were almost valueless, our bridegroom, our husband, the Lord Jesus, he paid everything. Heavenly Father, help our sin to connect with us in these personal, visceral ways. Help us to appreciate more and more our husband, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts for the incarnation of Christ. We pray in his matchless name. Amen and amen.